This is the Byron Bledsoe Podcast, Senior Pastor of C3 Church in Orlando, Florida. Thank you so much for checking out today's message. We hope this word encourages you and inspires you. Let's jump into the message. I hope you've had an amazing week. If you are a guest, we are walking as a church through the book of Genesis, chapter by chapter, the very first book in all the Bible. And there are a couple of reasons we do that. One of the reasons is, first of all, if you're a Christ follower, if you're a person of faith, Sometimes life is good and sometimes life is challenging. And it's very important in those difficult moments not to just know what you believe, but to know why you believe it. And so walking chapter by chapter through books of the Bible teaches us what the Word of God has to say about a number of areas of life. The other reason we do this is everybody, everybody in their own personality is drawn to certain passages and not drawn <clears throat> to other passages. And when you go chapter by chapter through books of the Bible, it forces you to deal with everything the Bible deals with, because the Bible deals with some very real things in life. Now today, um, today is going to be pretty heavy. We hit a place in the book of Genesis that is intense. It is difficult. For some of you, it is going to bring up some things in your life some things that perhaps you've tried to ignore, you've tried to forget, some things that you'd like to have never had happen, some things for many of you that are, are not your fault, but some things that happen. But I believe that God, through His Word and through His Spirit, offers a healing in a unique way. And I believe that happens over time. I believe that happens multiple times. I don't know that it's a one and done. Yes, it is a process. I also want you to understand what we're talking about today. If you disagree with anything the Bible says on this subject, if you disagree with anything I say, and I'm, I'm going to do the best I can to teach what the Bible teaches, I, I, I don't want to go further than that, but I certainly want to do, don't want to do less than that. Uh, if you disagree, I want you to know I'm not mad at you. I'm not upset with you. We have a disagreement. I don't apologize at all for what the Word of God teaches. My job is to deliver that message. I, I, I'm just the mailman. I'm just delivering the message. But if you disagree, I want you to know you're still important to us, and we still love you. But I deeply believe every single thing I'm going to talk about this morning, not because I'm a pastor, but because I believe the Word of God is foundational. I also want you to know this is going to be um, intense. Some of the wording is going to be shocking and troubling. We're going to deal with some adult subjects, and so if you're a parent and you have a child, fifth grade or younger, in the room with you, unless you want a somewhat disturbing and crazy lunch conversation, you want to take them out and check them in to see three kids. Because in the life of the church, we need to be able to deal honestly with what the Bible teaches, and we're not going to child-proof that. We have an atmosphere called C3 Kids that is amazing. It is built to teach your kids the foundations of faith on their level, teach them about Jesus on their level. This room is not designed for children fifth grade and younger, and today is one of those weeks. So I warned you, it's going to be heavy. I warned you, it's going to be intense. If you don't take your kids out, don't email me. That's on you. And um, you'll understand why very, very quickly. We're moving into Genesis chapter 18. And as we move into the 18th chapter, it becomes very obvious, very, very quickly, that your life and my life will go exactly where we tell it to go. I meet people all the time that say, man, I, I want to have great relationships. 
I want to be healthy in my finances. I want freedom financially. I want to have a loving and exciting marriage, and I want that to get better with each year that passes. I want to be a phenomenal parent, and yet often we plug into the GPS of life different directions than where we'd actually like to go. And we build into our life thinking lives, thinking patterns and habits that do not get us to the destination we desire. And then we grow frustrated because we're not there. Genesis chapter 18 and 19, we're, we're going to go through both of them. There's going to be a lot of scripture today. I'm going to read through it because it's important content. It's heavy content. But as I was thinking through this and processing this and talking to Jesus about it, let's just deal with it all in one week so it's not in two parts uh, because it's intense. So here we go. Genesis chapter 18, verse 17. What's happened is the Lord appears to Abraham and he has two angels with him and they're, they're about to have a conversation. Now, the Lord is Jesus before Bethlehem. It's called a Christophany. It's where Jesus is active in history because you understand Jesus' Jesus existence did not begin in Bethlehem. He's part of the Godhead, part of what we call the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he's just as active in the Old Testament as he is in the New. In the New Testament, we see the incarnated Christ. Incarnation means to take on flesh. But he was just as much God and just as active in the Old Testament. And so he shows up with two angels to have a conversation with Abraham. And chapter 18, verse 17 says this. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? There are times in life God reveals to us or shows us. We have an inkling. We have discernment. Hey, I think this is what God's doing and this is what's about to happen. But more often than not, we have no idea. And some of our greatest confusions in life come when we don't understand what God's doing or why he's doing it. And we can get caught up and tripped up in the details of what and why rather than just trusting the who, God, because he knows more than we do. But he decides on this occasion to explain to Abraham. And Abraham is going to have a conversation with Jesus. And what do you call conversations with God? You call it prayer. He's going to have a conversation with Jesus, and it begins in verse 20. Then the Lord said, he's talking to Abraham, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom. The two men, they're actually angels, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will you not, the judge of all earth, do right? And the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is less than 50? This is your kid. Hey, can we do this? No. Well, what, what about this? Okay, maybe. And if we can do that, can we do this too? What about this? I mean, he's in a negotiation, but before we slam Abraham too much, don't we negotiate with God sometimes in prayer? Hey, God, if you'll just do this, I'll do this. And by the way, if you'll do this and also do this, then I'll do this. There's a little bit of back and forth, and it's interesting to me how patient 
God who invites us to call him Father. How patient he is with Abraham. He is outraged to the point of saying, I'm going to see this for myself because the outcry of pain has reached me. I need to see if it's actually as bad as what I'm being told and what I'm hearing. Now, he already knew, but the process is not about what he's going to see. It's about the conversation with Abraham and what he does. Then Abraham spoke up again, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. Okay, what, what if only 40? What about 40? How about 40? What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. If I could just press in a little bit more, what if only 30 can be found there? And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if, what if only 20 can be found there? For the sake of the 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. We move into chapter 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot, remember Lot, Abraham's nephew. Lot, the guy that was following Abraham, his uncle, the father of our faith according to Scripture, and seeing God bless Abraham, seeing God use Abraham, seeing God work in Abraham's life. And even though Abraham's not perfect, he continues to follow God, and God blesses him. He sees all of that, and then they're, they're being so blessed that their individual families and workers grow so large in their herds that they can't stay together. There's too much conflict. And so there is that occasion we read about in earlier chapters where they decide, hey, we need to go separate ways. And Abraham, who has every right to choose, says to Lot, you pick which way you want to go. Lot decides to go to Sodom because he likes what he saw. And at first he moves near the city, then he moves in the city. And then notice what happens now. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Now, to sit in the gateway of the city in that culture means that you are in leadership in the city. You're the mayor. You're the city council. Only leadership would sit in the gateway. They would sit in the gateway in a way as part of protection. Because at night, what do you do? You close the gate. And so they're there to make sure anybody coming in the city that they don't know, they check their bags, they check their goods. Because once the gates are closed, if you're in the city, we're very vulnerable if you're going to attack, if you're going to do something cray-cray. So they're at the gate to protect the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. It was customary and common in that culture and that day in that part of the world that people traveling through would go to the city square and they would sleep at the city square overnight. They were just going to do what was customary in that day. But he, Lot, insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. And he prepared a meal for them, bake, breaking bread, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men, all the men, from every part of the city, every neighborhood of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. Both young and old, literally in the language, means about five years old and older. So these are young kids all the way through the oldest adults. They called to Lot 
Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. We're not surprised by the desire. But I am surprised by the magnitude. Every man from every part, five years old and older. Scholars believe Sodom was a town at that time of about 1,000 people. Potentially 8,000 people maximum, but most, most scholars, not just biblical scholars, but archaeologists believe that it was about 1,000 people. Now, you might be asking, is this one of those stories? I mean, if you've been in church any time, you know the end of the story. Sodom and Gomorrah, according to the Bible, are cities that God destroyed by fire because of the outcry, because of the level of sin in those cities. Is this, is this kind of a gotcha passage? I mean, is this one of those moments in Scripture where it's, okay, it's kind of exaggerated, they're telling a story, but it's not real, and it's just to kind of scare you straight into, into living how you need to live and not do anything stupid, or God may send a lightning bolt right to you? Is, is that what this is? No, Sodom is a literal place, so literal that archaeologists have actually found it, been digging there for almost two decades, and they've discovered, even from secular writers that are not Christ followers and don't believe the Bible, Scholars and professors at universities, archaeologists, have actually written that what they found in the remains speaks to something so magnificent in a negative way, so explosive, the heat so intense that bodies are actually disintegrated in what they have found. And they've said this could not have happened by anything they had at that time on earth. It had to happen from something outside of earth. So this is something validated by people that don't even believe the Bible or believe in God. But I notice, and we read the phrase, the outcry against Sodom. How is there an outcry if every man from every part and every age is in on this? Where is the outcry of the innocent if everybody's a predator? There had been other visitors to this town. And in that region, there are tons, were tons of small little towns all around it who had been bullied and harassed and violated by the people of Sodom. And you see the term, both young and old. Where do five and six and seven-year-olds get the ideas the idea of having sex with strangers or having sex at all. This is not something a five-year-old thinks about unless they're adults with evil purposes putting it in their minds. This is called, in many ways, American education today. There is a clear, unavoidable, undeniable, strategic, intentional process in our culture, in the day in which we live, to expose children to things and not just deal with what they may be feeling, but push and bully and harass them into exploring and trying to identify in a way that other people want them to. It, it is an attack on children. It is an attack on God's plan for the family laid out in Scripture. It's intentional, and we are living it in our day like never before but they lived it then. This is a city, Sodom, where the men 
have completely abused and violated younger men and even boys to the point that five and six and seven-year-old boys in this culture, it's all they know and it's what they've been exposed to daily. And what you're born into and what you're exposed to and what culture says is normal, if you're in that context and you're immersed in that kind of culture, then it doesn't matter how crazy it is or how evil it is, you think it's normal because it's all you've ever known. You think it's how you're supposed to behave. But young, innocent people don't think this up. It's only when pedophiles introduce it to their minds that it's on their minds. But before we're too blown away by these events, this is a city of about a 1,000 people. Think with me. That night, every male from every part of the city, from every age, young and the old. Out of a thousand people, it's estimated there were between three and five hundred men. There's no way three to five hundred men are going to have sex with these two men. There's just simply not enough time before the sun rises. Some are going to do it. Some are just going to stand by and watch. Today, we call this the Internet. Only a small group would have been able to do what they were threatening. The rest just clicked and watched and could convince themselves to feel a little bit better about themselves because they didn't actually participate. They were just watching. But Lot's there. He's Abraham's nephew. I mean, we need a hero, certainly. This is the guy that's going to protect him. This is guy, the guy that's going to try to be the hero. He's going to speak to these men, and he does in verse 6. Lot went outside to meet them, this crowd, and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. My friends? Lot's a guy who looked in a direction and saw something that he decided he wanted, and he moved near to Sodom, then he moved in Sodom, now he's in leadership in the city of Sodom, and these are the people that surround him. Every male in that city thought like this, and he calls them friends. From the guy who's been following Abraham while Abraham's been following God, from the guy who's been exposed to faith, and he's hung out with the, the father of our faith, from a guy who knows good from evil, and these men, this crowd, that they're asking, more than asking, they're demanding to have sex with his guest, and he calls the people making that demand his friends? They're demanding to have sex with his guest whether they want to participate or not. You call them friends? And then in verse 8, Lot says, look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Your daughters are not under the protection of your roof. How do you get there? I don't think like that. How do you get to the place that you think like this? 
How do you arrive at the address where it's okay to think more of strangers than your daughters? And for some of you, for some of you, this brings up a lot. And that's not lost on me. Because you have walked through some trauma where somebody that was supposed to protect you violated you or allowed it to happen. And I understand that. And I want you to know this morning, God knows that. And God doesn't endorse that, and he puts this passage in Scripture for a reason, and we'll get there in a moment. But please understand, as I was thinking through, praying through, and looking at this text, please understand it's not lost on me that for some of you, these are not just words on a page of a horrible story, but they bring up some horrible things that have happened in your life that you've worked hard to get past, but it's still painful. And I want you to know before this morning, before the sun ever came up today, and I knew what we would be talking about, I prayed for you. And I'll continue to pray for you. And I know that doesn't fix everything. But I just want you to know that I'm aware. And I know that God's aware. And he can do the impossible. And he can work healing in your life and mine in ways that we can't even begin to imagine or work up ourselves. Don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters. Take them kind of man what kind of man what kind of dad the big idea there's several but one I think we need to process the friends you have determine the thinking you have and do not assume that because you don't do what they do that somehow you're okay with God if you're silent around people who do wicked things. If that's the crowd that you're immersed in and the people you hang out with and you feel a little bit better than yourself because you're not doing what they're doing, you're just hanging out with them and they're your friends. You need some different friends. He looked over and saw the city, and he liked it, so he moved near to the city, then he moved in the city, now he's in leadership in the city, now at this point, this kind of action, Lot is not just living in Sodom. Sodom is living in Lot now. What you live in lives in you. What you tolerate, what you accept as okay, no matter what God says. I mean, you, listen, whether you agree with it or not, whether you like it or not, the Bible makes a very indisputable and strong case that the only kind of sex God endorses is between one man and one woman in a lifetime covenant called marriage. That's it. You might not like it, but, but let's at least be intellectually honest. That is God's perspective. And if you're living in a place where no big deal. Does, does God take sexual sin more seriously than you do? Does God take sin more seriously than you do, than I do? 
when you expose yourself to something long enough, even if it's unhealthy or evil, over time, it becomes normal to you. You're not actually having an affair. You're just consuming pornography hours every week. And you tell yourself it's not hurting anybody. And it could be so much worse what you could do. And you're protecting your spouse because they don't know. You're not living in reality. You've become okay with something that God calls sin, something that Jesus died for. You're not thinking about the reality of the people you're watching and the conditions that they're in. You're not thinking about the sex trade and what happens in our world on a regular basis and how people are abused in horrific ways. You're participating in something passively that you think is no big deal because you've decided it's no big deal, but you are not the authority. And God says sexual sin interrupts and disrupts and paints a picture of something very different than the best life available for us to live. And no matter how you slice it and dice it, you have to come to the point where you decide, is the Bible the Word of God or not? Now, let me, let me tell you a little secret. And this might ruin your lunch. Let me just tell you a little secret. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you're having for lunch. What you and I think about the validity of the Bible does nothing to change its validity. Just because you don't agree with something really doesn't matter jack squat. According to God, this is his word, and it's foundational. You have every right to say, I don't buy that. I don't believe that. I don't agree with that. You have every right to do that. You have every right. I have every right to do something stupid every day. And we do that on a regular basis. Are there things that God in his word calls sin that have become normal to you? Because what you live in lives in you. What I live in lives in me. How did Lot get here? How did he go from a person exposed to faith? And Abraham's not perfect. He messes up in big ways. We've studied it. And yet there is this default position in his life where he continues to trust God and follow God. And when he messes up, he, he, he gets cold on the carpet and God is merciful. But God shows him and he deals with some consequences. But he continues to try to follow God and hold on to his faith. How, how did Lot get here? It began because when he was deciding where to go, he looked towards Sodom. And it's very, very simple. Very, very simple. He liked what he saw. The same thing that gets you in trouble and me in trouble. Sometimes we like what we see. A and please hear me. What looks good at a distance is not always good. What you may be drawn to with a glance may change you for the worse if you go there. She comes into the office every day and she smiles at you in a way that your wife doesn't anymore. You like the way she dresses. She's always nice around you. She's always upbeat. There's just something about her. And so you find yourself, because you like what you saw, you find yourself thinking about her not just at work, but when you're at home. You figure out ways to be close to where she's going to be, and you, you figure out ways to have conversations, and you make up excuses to engage in conversations, and you find common ground and the things that you like, and you start to think things like, she is amazing. There's never been anybody like her. 
and you decide that she is way better than the person you promised to be faithful to your entire life in front of God and other people. Now promises don't matter. Desires are more important. The word of God doesn't matter. Your feelings are paramount. And now you're going to chase what you want. And there are two things that you have failed to recognize in the process that are going to bite you in the behind in this process. Number one, maybe she can be so nice to you because she doesn't live with you. She doesn't know the downside of you, the underwear on the floor, the foul temper, the way you don't do anything to help around the house, your attitude toward your spouse, your inconsistency toward your kid. She's, she can be nice to you because she doesn't live with you. What do you think it's going to be like when she gets to know you? The second thing that you failed to recognize in your desire because you liked what you saw and you decided to pursue mentally what God says, hey, be careful about. The, the second thing you failed to realize, someone who knows that you're married and doesn't respect your marriage to someone else will never re respect your marriage or relationship to them. People that don't respect marriage don't respect marriage. And you can lie to yourself and tell yourself the story, oh, but this is the one. Somehow I just missed it and she's the one. And we'll talk in about two years, three years, or for some of you two months or three months. And once she gets to know you the way your wife knows you, she won't be who you think she is. She won't smile all the time. There's going to be conflict because great relationships and great marriages are hard. They take work. Don't buy the lie of culture that says you just have to find the right person. It is a lie. The goal from Scripture is you've got to learn to become the right person, the person God created you to be, and when you do that, you'll be better. And guess what? Every single person who lives a better life, you know what happens? Their relationship gets better. It's crazy how that works. And if you're not careful, you'll go to places that burn you. And you'll see things at a glance that you want and you decide you like. And if you're not careful, you will spend your life chasing a feeling. And once it doesn't work with that one, it won't work with the next one. And you'll wake up one day and understand you are the common denominator in every problem and blow up of life that you've had. But, but it started. He got here the same way we get there. Now, you might be thinking, I'm not that extreme. But if there's anywhere in your life that God says, this is how you live, and you've said, nah, I'm going to do what I want, you're on the path. You're not all the way there. I mean, th this is extreme, granted. But you're on the path. Sin is a combination of three things, and we hate that word sin. But, but listen, the reality is sin, honestly, is anything in my life, my thoughts, my words, my actions, that is displeasing to a holy God. Or anything in my life, my thoughts, my words, my actions, that God would want me to do, but I abstain from. That, that's sin. When we displease God, sin is always a combination of three things. Undetected weakness. You think you're strong in an area that you're not that strong. I can build a friendship. It's fine. I won't go there. I've got this. I'll only let it go so far because it feels really good to be around her. Undetected weakness. Unexpected temptation. What, what if she buys what you're selling? What if she says one day, I think I'm falling in love with you? You wanted it, but you're not sure you wanted it. But now you've got it, and now you're in a place where your emotions are attached. Undetected weakness, unexpected temptation, and an unprotected life. Do you have things in place in your life to protect you from earning a PhD in stupid? 
Have you put some things in place in your life? Listen, life is complicated. And emotions, emotions will take you on a ride that will destroy you. If you chase your feelings every day, you're going to need a lot of medication and you're going to eventually live a miserable life because feelings change. Sin is always a combination of undetected weakness, unexpected temptation, and an unprotected life. These are the ingredients, the recipe of tragedy. But notice verse 9. Get out of our way. Lot, Lot has said, hey, take my daughters. He stepped outside. Get out of our way, the crowd replies. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play judge? We'll treat you worse than them. And they kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside, these two angels, reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck, it's not funny, but this part's funny. They struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. Now think about that. The crowd that's outside the door in this horrific moment, their purpose is to violate two people, or if they're not participating, at least watch it. They know what's about to happen. A lot of sex is about to happen. That's the goal. And all of a sudden, you can't see. And people are bumping into you and poking and prodding you, and you're not sure what's about to happen, and it's, it's all fist. There is a nightmare and confusion and chaos outside the door. But I wonder, when Lot is pulled back in and the door is shut and he's safe, I wonder if he excels a little bit. And as he excels... I wonder if he thought, how did I get here? Have you had one of those moments in life? Not like this. Maybe not this devastating. Or maybe equally devastating, but in different ways. Have, have you ever wondered, how did, I, how did I get here? I mean, at one time, my faith was strong. At one time, I tried to live my life in a way that honored God. And, and, and the script I would have written for my life, chapter by chapter, what I'm living now, five years, ten years later, it, it, it's nothing that I would have written. How, how did I get here? How did Lot get there? When he was deciding where to go, he looked towards Sodom and he liked what he saw. The big idea is that when you let your desires set your path instead of God's word, you will always end up in the wrong place. Someone said, quote, it is possible to have a saved soul, but a wasted life, end quote. It is possible to give your life to Jesus and then determine that's as far as I'm going, I want to make sure I'm going to heaven, and waste the rest of your life and not follow him. Verse 12, the two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, listen to these words, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry of the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters, and he said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. When you live and think like, the culture. When sin that is acceptable to culture becomes acceptable to you, and you may not participate, but you ignore it and look away, or you look on and enjoy it on the inside, but convince yourself you're not participating. When your friends 
desire and do things that hurt people. And you stand by. You lose influence. Verse 15, with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. Are you kidding me? With the coming of dawn? <laughs> I don't know. If two angels, who are obviously from God, just protected me like that and tell me, get the fat out of Dodge because the city's about to be destroyed, I'm not there in the morning. I don't say to Angie, hey, babe, let's sleep on it and think about it. Like, I, I'm gone. I'm out. With the coming of dawn, my man, knowing everything he knows, knowing that every man from every part of the city, from every age, their desire, who they are, the kind of culture he's in, what he's allowed himself to become okay with gradually over time, not participating, but just ignoring, under the guise probably like we do in our culture today of, I just want to love people, like let people do what they want to do. Are you stupid? People that want to murder, should we let them murder? People that want to harm children, should we just let them harm children? We kind of are standing by and letting that happen right now. I mean, love. See, authentic love says no sometimes. If my children want to go out on the 408 when they were little and build a playhouse, heck to the no, not happening. Not because I don't love them, but because I do. Sometimes God says no. Some, if you love somebody, there will be times you say, stop, because I love you. Listen, love is not endorsing every opinion and lifestyle and saying, you go, you be you. That is not love. That is enabling and what we're doing is we are cheering on people, adding to their pain by grabbing for solutions that are not solutions and say, you go, I love you. I don't want to say anything to be offended to you. And I certainly don't want to be canceled. So you do you and whatever you want to do. And we are actually applauding people bringing more harm and pain to their lives rather than lovingly sharing truth. You know what the city has done to your family? You know how it's changed you. You see how the relationships that you've embraced with people you call friends has caused you to embrace sin. You see how your life and what you've tolerated, how it shaped your kids and harmed your kids. And you know that destruction is coming and you sleep on it. The same way in a room like this. Sunday after Sunday, God will speak something to your heart about, hey, this is you. You need to deal with this. The Holy Spirit has a very unique way, no matter what topic I'm talking about, because honestly, I really don't matter. It's the Spirit of God through the Word of God that changes lives. And the Holy Spirit has a way of speaking to individuals. And some people in this room week after week, man, they receive it. God, please change my life. And other people, you push it away and ignore it, just like Lot. You're going to sleep on it. You're going to think about it a while. When he hesitated... The men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, and the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. Don't look back. It's very intentional language. Don't look back. It doesn't mean don't glad. It means don't look. We'll talk about it in a second. But God says the same thing to us that he says to Lot. I'll give you a way out if you'll take it. That's called mercy. I don't know if you know this. You don't deserve mercy. I don't deserve mercy. There's never been a day in my life where God has looked at my grade for that day and thought, A plus, you were good enough today. It doesn't exist. We don't deserve mercy. God gives mercy because of his love. But Lot said to them, verse 18, No, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you've shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But can't, I, I can't, 
I can't flee to the mountains. I, I can't go where God's telling me to go. This, this disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here's a town near enough to run to and it's small. Let me flee to that. It, it's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. I'm, I am so grateful. I'm so grateful that there are stupid people in the Bible. I'm so grateful. Because every time I read something, I think, you're stupid. All of a sudden, I see a little picture of me. And it's like, oh, I'm, I'm stupid too. And it gives me hope. God says, leave and go here. I, God, I don't, I don't want to go that far. I just want to know, I want to go far enough to be saved. But I, I don't want to go all the way. I don't want to become one of those radical people in my faith. I don't want, just, just let me go far enough where I don't get blown up or burned. That, that's all I really want. I don't want to go all the way with you. I just kind of want your protection. I don't want anything bad to happen, but, but I kind of still want to make my choices, and I kind of still want to do what I want to do. I just want to go far enough that I'm safe. Is that you? God, I know what you say about being kind to people, and I, I, I'm not going to go all the way there because, listen, how hard is it to be kind to nice people? A three-year-old can do that. Being kind takes some spiritual juice if you're going to be kind to people that are unkind. Well, I don't want to go that far. I mean, I, I don't want to give people that are unkind that. I just, I just want to go far enough. I just want to pray a prayer where when this life is over, I go to heaven. If that whole thing's real, I want to make sure I've got that on lockdown. But the rest of my life, I want to do what I want to do. I just want to go far enough where I'm safe and, and I don't go to hell. But, but everything else, I, I'm going to lead my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. He said to him, very well, I'll grant this request too. I'll not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly. Get the fat out of Dodge right now. Leave. Get up. Go. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Don't sleep on it. Listen, when God shows you something in your life where there is sin in your life, and it happens to all of us because we all sin, when God shows you that, the greatest mistake you can make is to hesitate. The greatest mistake you can make is to think, well, I need to process, or I need to wait, or I need to pray through it. God, you will never pray God's opinion away about something he's already spoken to. You don't have to pray. Let me save you some time and emotional energy. You don't have to pray about anything God's already addressed in his word. He's already given his opinion on it. You already know. The greatest thing you can do, flee. And if God convicts you, if God convicts me of sin, the, more, the, the, the bigger the sin is and the more we're into it, we've been near it, now we live in it, now we're leading the charge, the more radical the response needs to be in fleeing. Get out of there. Because I cannot do anything till you reach it. That's why the town was called Zor. By the time Lot reached Zor, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord. And anytime you see the word Lord in all caps in the Bible, it literally means Yahweh. It's a very specific name for God. In fact, it's such a holy name that in the Jewish culture, they would not even say the name. It's four consonants. They added vowels later to be able to say it. But Yahweh, th this is the highest God of gods. This is an elevated God. This is God, the Lord. Specifically, it literally means Yahweh, Jesus. I thought Jesus is love and kind. I thought Jesus is always nice to everybody. The Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Jesus is so nice and so kind that he doesn't tolerate innocent being harmed forever. And it may feel like that in your life. And it may feel like that's part of your story, but your story's not over. And this life is not over. And the next life is way better. And he's going to make everything right. But Jesus, does, Jesus listen, he doesn't stand by passively and ignore or applaud a lot of what we do. Thus he overthrew those cities in the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, in the language, looked back, it, it doesn't speak of glancing. 
It means she looked longingly. She desired what was rather than what God was taking her. She wanted the life she had rather than the life God was offering her. And it's interesting to me, why did God turn her into a pillar of salt? Well, perhaps, just my opinion. I can't prove this by the Bible, my opinion, so it doesn't mean much, but let's just have fun with it. Pillar of salt, why? Well, the Bible says that people of faith are to be salt and light in a world that needs some flavor and needs some help and some light and some harmony. What to be salt? Salt is what is to flavor life. It's what's to bring the best flavor of life. I wonder if God was saying, okay, in your life you refuse to be salt, you refuse to be different, you refuse to be the kind of flavor that would help people and be beneficial to people, so what you weren't in your life, I'll make you in your death. Just my opinion. All she said was, I don't want what God wants, I want what I want. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land, of the plain, and when he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. He remembered Abraham. Do you know what that means? It means Lot was saved because he had an uncle who prayed for him. The conversation before the two angels go to the city to destroy it, Abraham is talking with Jesus the Lord in the Old Testament showing up with two angels, and he begins to negotiate like we do in prayer sometimes, but he's actually, he has Lot on his mind, who's his nephew. His brother has died. Lot's very close to him. He's got a soft spot for him, and so he's hoping that Lot and his family can be saved and rescued, and he's praying for Lot. Lot was not saved because he fully followed everything God wanted. He was limiting what God wanted to do in his life. I'll go this far, not that far. Lot was saved because he had an uncle who prayed for him. What does that mean? It means that your obedience is not just your obedience. It affects everyone in relationship to you. It also means that your sin is not just your sin. It affects everyone in relationship with you. And this is all being written by the Spirit of God, divinely inspired through Moses. And it's why it's essential that you and I walk with God. So where are you? Do you minimize what God says is a big deal? Are there areas of your life where you've limited where God wants to take you because you only want to go so far? Can you come to the place of maturity where you understand that God always knows best and God always knows more and God always has your best interest at heart and every single thing he says in his word is for your benefit and the benefit of the people you and I love the most? Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I pray for every person in this room that's a Christ follower. Father, I pray that we would evaluate the areas of our lives where we've limited where you want to take us. Father, I pray you'd help us to understand today and throughout this week and moving forward that we would spiritually mature and we would grow in our faith to understand that what we live in lives in us. And Father, I pray we would repent of, confess, and ask for your help in changing the areas of our lives where we struggle, where we think we know better than your word or we prefer something different than what your word teaches. Help us to develop a quick, sensitive yes to everything you teach us in your word. And with heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're here today and you know that the greatest need of your life is to give your life to Jesus, the God who loves you, the God who wants to give you a home in heaven after this life, who wants to forgive your sin and give you the spirit, his spirit to live inside you in this life. 
Right now, if there's anything inside you saying, that's what I need, hey, that's the Spirit of God saying, I want you. And so if you've never given your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you. This is your day. This is your moment. I want to encourage you to pray a very simple prayer. You can pray it out loud. I'll lead you in the prayer. You can pray it out loud. You can pray it in the quietness in your heart. The Bible says in Matthew, Jesus knows even our thoughts. But if you'd like to give your life to Jesus today, I can't think of a better day. A God who is intensely loving. A God who will defend and protect and do what he needs to do. But a God who wants to know you personally and who wants to save you. Save me. He saved me from myself. He saved me from hell. He saved me from a less than life. And he wants to do the same in your life. Just pray this prayer. Dear God, I know that I need you. Jesus, please come into my life. Please forgive me. Thank you for loving me. As best I know how, I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us. If you just prayed that prayer, we would love to know it. You can text your name to 407-487-8311, and Pastor Byron will be praying for you this week. And also, we want to thank you for your faithful generosity. You can go to giveC3.cc, or you can text C3 Orlando to 77977. Thank you so much for how you give. And if you are in Central Florida, please join us in person at our campus at 9.30 or 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Have a great week.